Hello and welcome to Rotopod. Thanks for joining us. My name is Jesus Francisco Sierra. I am a short fiction writer and essayist, and I'm here to have a conversation with my good friend Roberto Lovato, whose upcoming memoir, Unforgetting, will be released September 1. Roberto is a child of uh, Salvadoran immigrants. Uh, he grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, San Francisco's Mission District, not far from my home, as uh, MS-13 and other gangs uh, were just forming in California. You know, while he was uh, his teenager, he lost a lot of friends uh, to, to violence and survived actual brutality himself. He eventually left the mission for wartime El Salvador, where he joined guerrilla movement against the U.S.-backed uh, military government responsible for some of the worst crimes against humanity in recent history. When he returned uh, to the United States, uh, he basically took that pain and everything that he witnessed into activism and journalism and uh, began his difficult journey uh, confronting the roots of his trauma. He had a very contentious relationship with his father growing up, his father Ramon, who was raised in extreme poverty in the countryside of El Salvador in the early 1920s and 30s. He learned, uh, his father learned to survive by, you know, intersecting, uh, straddling intersecting underworlds of family, secrets, trauma, and dealings in black market goods and guns. He's quite a character and remains uh, quite a character. <laughs> so as, a, as an adult, his father, I mean, I can, I can attest to this because I've, I've, been, I've been to your house enough, right? Uh, Ramon was plagued with silences and fits of anger that had a profound impact on, on Roberto. And he attributes, Roberto attributes that as a source of his constant reckoning with violence and rebellion in his own life. So that said, uh, Roberto, I, uh, I wanna, why don't you tell me a little bit about what this book is about? Well, you kind of summarize it nicely there, Jesus, but um, there's different ways to look at a book, and this book, and one way is like a, through a narrative arc. What's the arc mm-hmm. of my story? And my arc, my story has different arcs. At one level, it's a story of a father and son relationship. So it's basically me love my dad early on as a kid like everybody else. Love, hate my dad. (laughs) I started discovering my dad's crime networks in San Francisco at Hunts Donuts. And then love, hate, and rebel against my dad as I become an adolescent and be eventually rebel against not just my padre, my dad, but against the patria of El Salvador and the patria of the United States. Mm-hmm. I become a revolutionary. And what happened, then lo- loving my dad again. So there's, that's one arc. Mm-hmm. Another arc could be just what we Salvadorans uh, experience. Um, the greatest Salvadoran poet, Roque Dalton, who was also, he was a guerrilla himself and a poet. Roque Dalton said that we were all born half dead as Salvadorans. One of the ways I wrote this book was the story of my journey from being half dead to being more fully alive. Uh, that's another way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, is, is a story of how the fragments of memory, um, the memories of individuals and the fragmented memories of nations need to be brought back together in an alternative narrative. Because if you look at Donald Trump caging Salvadoran children, you have a country that has a false image of itself. Or if you look at Barack Obama caging Salvadoran children, you're also learn, looking at a country that refuses to see its truth. Because a lot of people deny that Barack Obama caged, concentrated 
separated and killed Salvadoran and other Central American children. And I documented this, that he did. But people don't like to admit that. So and that, that goes, it's the story of a breaking of deep silences of family and of country. So, and you know, a lot of that talks about family, migration. I talk about gangs. You know, I go in to the heart of, uh, of gang country to find what's behind the dark image, the darkness of the image of Salvadoran gangs. And I find young gang members who are human beings, surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. And I go into the heart of death squad operatives and I find human beings. And I f- go into the heart of members of my family who have some incredible, even astonishing stories. I find human beings. It doesn't mean they're good human beings. It just means that there's complicated stories that are far more complicated than the monster stories we get about, say, MS-13 from Donald Trump or MS-13 on television from my peers in the media. You know, I'm a journalist. Mm-hmm. So those are the different, some of the different ways that I look at what my book's about. So um, just wanted to share a few things with, uh, with the audience here. And uh, just start out, Roberto, I know that years ago we were, you know, we were talking about writing books. You had in mind uh, a whole different memoir. Maybe you can share a little bit about what, what made, uh, how about brought you to the decision to write this particular book? Well, I appreciate uh, you doing this, Jesus, and I appreciate the uh, Grotto Pod and the Grotto support, uh, consistent support for, for our work, for in this case, for my book. Uh, my book's a product of uh, personal and political history, as a, not just as a Salvadoran, but as a person from the United States. Um, ultimately, it's a story of family secrets and the secrets of nations, of states, you know, and, and, and the connection between the two. And I've kind of had this book in me for some time. I've had a lot of family secrets. I had my own personal secrets that I've never been really out about, like things like my militancy in, a, in, a, in El Salvador and, and uh, during the war. Uh, so, I, you know, it's a kind of a, it's a book about kind of overcoming and, and, and in the face of extreme violence and the resilience that that it takes. I think it's in in that way. It's a it's a larger story. It's not just about my family or about El Salvador or about the United States. It's kind of trying to tell a story that that transcends that. And I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a book that helped people that were facing realities that were, were like what we're facing now in the world: COVID nineteen, Donald Trump, you know, the rise of fascism. And then once we get through all that, then we got to face climate change. So we're going to need a sensibility to deal. And I thought that I had some experience being a Salvadoran and having seen the things that I've seen in what is still one of the most consistently violent countries on earth. So, so you know, I, I, it com- comes to mind as you say that that you know it takes to write a memoir. Always, you know, is, is you know people talk about not just having the courage to do it, but having the courage to be vulnerable. Um, and I think that it, it just doesn't happen, right? I mean, you have to come to that place when you really feel, it's not just about writing the book. I think the timing of the book is important, particularly in your life. Um, and I think it's a confluence of events that brought you to this point, even though you've been working on this book for a good five years. Um, you know, as long as you and I have worked together and, you know, in our writing sort of journeys. Um, 
So there's, there's three tracks here. You have your own personal history, the stories of the relationship between El Salvador and the United States, and a whole sordid history there. And then you also have your father's story, which, as I recall, is sort of what one of the things that really triggered you or brought you on. There's always an event that kicks you in that direction. I don't think when your father uh, revealed uh, a long time secret, it sort of all of a sudden ignited your energy uh, for moving forward. So talk a little bit about how you um, how you conceived of putting the book together and the many, you know, how, how it all came together in terms of the braided narrative that you did put together ultimately. Well, um, you know, memoir is about memory. Mm -hmm. right? It's a series of hopefully interconnected stories that are interconnected memories that tell a larger story. So, and, you know, I read somewhere that, mem you know, the there's also like anytime you write a memoir, there's always, you're always making a comment about time. So it's a comment about memory and about time. And for me, it's also a comment on trauma, right? The fragmenting uh, effects of trauma, the intergenerational nature of it, the, the and the way that trauma, you know, kind of disconnects our sense of time and of space. So that if something happens to me, I see a picture of a Portland police officer in a, in a military fatigues, grabbing a kid protester, shoving them in an unmarked vehicle. It triggers me. I see El Salvador in 1990s. 1980s. So how do I tell a story about memory that is true to memory in the way that it is fragmented, especially when you have trauma? And I thought, and I discovered in school this idea of a braided narrative where you're trying to weave three different stories into something cohesive. And I experimented in an essay and then I did it. I decided I want to do it in the book. So I mapped it out and I tried to connect the pieces. This is an extraordinary amount of work, to be frank, for me. As a writer, it was really hard. I think I succeed according to what critics and people that have read it say. It, it kind of works. And so I really wanted to show um, the interconnection of my father's story to the 1960s and to 2000 in the middle section and to the present day gang violence in El Salvador and life in the United States now. So I wanted to show the influence of history and of memory in our lives as individuals and also as communities and as nations yeah. and the interconnectedness. Well, how, how did you, you know, in terms, I, I also know that you, you know, you and I talked about it throughout the process and, you know, the, the, the nature of the, the structure of this thing shifted as you went through it. Um, and you talk a little bit about how, you know, you, what it takes to get it to the final product. I know you and I were just the other day we were talking about how you, know, you start out thinking this is what it's going to look like, and as the process evolves, it ends up something else. Um, you know, how, talk a little bit about how how that process evolved for you. I mean, it's five years; things did change along the way, and um, I'd, I'd like to maybe you can share a little bit of what you shared with me in the past about how you got there. Well, really, the book was written in about three years, mm -hmm. but you have research up front and then you have the editing process with your publisher at the end. Mm -hmm. So um, 
you know, I came to the, the, the and, and and that along that way, you're going to change any any good writing is going to be edited, and the edit is a is a way to is 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 inevitably going to change in line with how you see the story you're trying to tell. And so, you know, as I you know, you, you're I'm learning. This is my first book, so I'm learning to narrate and narrate in this really complicated way that it, had I an idea of how difficult it was going to be, maybe I would have never done it. <laughs> but um, now that I've done it, I realize, wow, it took it took a lot of time and, and a lot of uh, commitment to change up the structure. I mean, the core structure didn't change. Mm-hmm. I saw the braided narrative and what I wanted to do. What changed was things like, for example, the length of the chapters where I started realizing, God, you can't tell this this or other stories that are braided with long, long chapters. Mm-hmm. You're going to lose the reader. So I tried to edit from the perspective of shortening. I tried to edit from the perspective of being truer to certain themes. Suddenly, we're at a time where policing of our society is critically important. So suddenly, I really have a desire and to bring up to dredge up the my memory and and the stories of policing that I've known and counterinsurgency policing and the circuits of counterinsurgency policing between say U.S. trainers in El Salvador who then come back to the U.S. to train Los Angeles Police Department in counterinsurgency gang anti-gang policing and then LAPD sending their police to train El Salvador's police after the war to chase gangs and to kill them so. Uh, that becomes something really important, so I have to adjust my my lens with some with my interests and with themes that occur to me. Uh, I had to adjust in terms of. Eventually, I made a, a, a preferential option for the lyrical. Mm-hmm. You know, I really wanted to make the music. I realized I wanted to make it more musical and beautiful. Because I think, in order to carry people through any story, you have to kind of keep their attention, and one of the ways you do it is to write as beautifully as possible. I don't know if I succeed. I, I, I gave it my best. Mm-hmm. And uh, people that read it have cried. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, it's important to, to, to put in the beautiful alongside the, the, the awful side of the sublime, right? Because our concepts of the sublime inherently have not just the beautiful, but also the terror-inspiring. Mm-hmm. If you look at what philosophers like Immanuel Kant or... Uh, uh, others have Edmund Burke, Sir Edmund Burke in England, who you know wrote about the sublime as well, and Longinus and others. Uh, you know they they're together. The the beautiful and the terrifying are always together, hand in hand. Yeah, you mentioned music, and I I just want I wanted I wanted to bring up music too because you know I know that uh, well a couple of things. One, you were talking about the process and and how difficult it would be. And, you know, I can, it's obviously, being on the side for while you did this, you know, I can attest to some of the times when, you know, um, I sensed, you know, how difficult it was and how overwhelming the nature of the writing and the experience, the things that you were reliving in a way, uh, how it affected you personally. But I think one of the things that you, you used to get you through that a lot was music. I don't know how many times we, we, we ended up at Bohem and there you are with your with your earphones on playing your air drums and getting inspired by the music you're listening mm-hmm. to. Um, and 
can you, you know, I, I, how, did, how did music, it's not just the musicality of your writing, but I know that music is also an inspiration to you in, a, in, 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 the, way, in the way that you write and what you write about. And so you, I, I know that you seek certain songs depending on what parts of the book you're writing. Yeah. Uh, and and so, so that's kind of an interesting process that I, you know, I, 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 I can't, I don't do it that way. I know that you do. Yeah, I use music, I use music to, to wake me up. You have music that makes me go hard, like, you know, like I'm, I'm back in, you know, in the war trying to fire myself up for, a, for something I need to do that's dangerous. Uh -huh. Or when I do any dangerous thing, I listen to music. Right. Like I went to Mexico and uh, looking for mass grave sites and going into cartel country and, you know, there's a certain song that's really dark and kind of intense by uh, a Dominican artist. Um, God, her name escapes me right now, but, um, you know, Pasame La Buca is the name of the song. Mm -hmm. And it's just intense and it gets me through and I use music that way when I'm gonna go to the dark, scary places within myself. Mm -hmm. There's classical music, Rodrigo, like the guitar concerts or Vals Triste, which is a very gorgeous, sad, and yet kind of kind of a song that you can actually dance waltz to. And I picture dancing with my dead mother with and drawing on my mother's energy or, you know, so I use music to, 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 to write and I, and I do try to write as musically as I can. And sometimes I try to reproduce the feeling the music gives me or sometimes it's just trying to remember like when I'm with my former partner G who was a former guerrilla leader and are the beginning of our romance here in San Francisco. I was telling her about Santana when we were listening to Carlos Santana who went to school with my brother. And so Santana's music, I associate with a period of my life. Santana's music, certain songs, and also I associate with the rise of Latino power in the US. So I use music for different, in different ways in the writing, but it's part and parcel of the writing. You mentioned your, you mentioned uh, your mom and I do, I wanted to talk a little bit about the female characters that, that are in this, in this book and, and three that to me stand out um, are, and have really had an influence in you as I've no, as long as I've known you mm -hmm. is you have, you know, Mama Tay, you have your mom, of course, and then you have G. And these are characters that I think were instrumental in, in, in sort of shifting your direction in life and also encouraging you, bringing along some of them, like Mama Tay and your mom were there all along. G confused something that shifted your, the direction in your life too. So I'm just kind of interested at where, as you wrote this book, I know that your mom was always present and I think Mama Tay just kind of started to, were there any revelations about your relationship with them or what the influence they had in your life that came to light as, as you wrote this book that you maybe hadn't considered before? Yeah, I mean, I, I realized the role that, I mean, the, the narrative is largely focused on, a fa it's a father and son story. Mm -hmm. It's a patria, padres, and hijo story, a, a fatherland, quote unquote, mm -hmm. father and son so. story, and the interconnection between state, state terror, domestic abuse of violence and the history of trauma and intergenerational passing on of the torch of trauma. Um, but within that is also our moms. And I mean, I could write a whole nother book about my mom and her influence. And my mom's influence is really the energy that moves me to, to dive into the abyss. 
my mother was one of the most courageous people I know in emo in emotional and in just physical terms. My mom was pretty fearless. She didn't she taught me not to fear death. Mm-hmm. You know, and to look at death and and to look at it is a part of life. She always had it present like I mentioned a story where you know, she's talking to me and I'm noticing she has like this wax uh arm what do you call it? A, the a bracelet. Bracelet, thank you. A bracelet with uh, Halloween skeletons. I said, Mom, why do you have that? Well, why are you wearing that, Mom? She goes, well, we always have to remind ourselves that we're all mortal. We're all going to die. And I was like, you know, I grew up with stuff like that. Or her taking me into the catacombs of of Paris where there's like millions of, the bodies of millions of people buried under underground. Mm-hmm. So my mother helped me with a part of this that was the journey into the underworld that I inhabited and I grew up with and that I chose to pursue, whether it's the underworld of Salvadoran history and violence, the underworld of the revolutionary movement that I was a part of, the underworld of um, of the psychology and the history and the trauma, the underworld of crime that my father was a part of at Hunt's Donuts here in San Francisco and, and other places. Uh, so that was my mom's energy, my grandmother, Mama Tay's energy. My mom, grandmother was a seamstress. And so when I approached trying to put together the bones of our history, literally, right? Because I, I went to mass grave sites for 2,500 miles of mass graves that I've traversed from El Salvador to Texas towns where local officials who don't know any better grab the remains of children, the bones of mothers, put them in plastic bags or in milk cartons, and bury them in mass grave sites. So I've traversed the whole northern part of the continent in search of of, of the bones of our memory, mm-hmm. literally. And, you know, there's a forensics, I, there's a beauty in forensics that I discovered in writing this book. But I also discovered the beauty in my grandmother, Mama Tay, being able to weave the bones of our families together to bring us to bring my dad and her kids to the United States to give birth to a Salvadoran story in the United States. And the way my grandmother had a iron singer sewing machine in which she sewed pieces of cloth together to make dresses for prostitutes who had been denied their humanity in a very repressive Salvadoran state. And the way my grandmother would give dresses that were tailored literally to the desires of, say, an indigenous woman who had to escape mass violence and lose her indigenous identity and who wanted to be, have her humanity returned to her. My grandmother would play a role by giving her a dress that my grandmother sewed together. So for me, that was like kind of a forensic act, too, in terms of the reconstruction of memory and of who we are, the unforgetting. Yeah. It's a symbol of unforgetting. And so then you have G, my former partner, who's a, who was a, a, a guerrilla leader, a diplomat for the guerrillas, and her, you know, kind of not just action-oriented part of her and courage. She helped, she and I survived death squad operatives chasing us. She has survived the obscenities of war. I, even I don't know. And just as a human being, she was, she is an extraordinary person, even after we stopped being together, she was, we've been friends and she accompanied my mother on her deathbed with us. Just a quality human being and 
a real revolutionary. And I, anybody who knows me knows I adore revolution. So. So I, I one thing I just I just find that, you know, so people that they're listening to this, you know, there's a a lot of mention of, of violence and mass, but what I find I find a lot of beauty in in that these women that are in your story, uh, in a way, use death as a lifeline, which is kind of an interesting concept, right? I mean, the uh, the 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 embracing that death is a part of us is become somewhat of a lifeline even to you as you, as you pulled you through this and and it's pulled basically your entire history through this mm -hmm. i um you know I, and i and i think there's a lot of beauty in that so aside from the you know as, as i read this i there, there was always that sense that you had a guiding light and it always came from the you know it just seemed to me that there was a, there was those female uh figures in your life that have sort of given you that 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 lifesaver type thing uh, so one, one, you know, couple more things I wanted to ask you, man. I wanted to, um, you know, what is it that you, you know, what do you think you wanted to get accomplished in this book? Do you feel you, you did you achieve that? And what can you tell? Just two, two part question. And secondly, what can you share to to the audience? I mean, in terms of as a writer, what have you learned as a writer uh, in putting this book together? Uh, that you mentioned something about is this obviously your first book other lessons that you can you feel you can share uh, the, the, as far as the process and the actual you know getting this first thing and how do you feel about it well the big takeaway is hey man you better think twice about writing a braided narrative for an entire <laughs> book because it's a lot of work man yeah. right but on a more serious note I would say I would give a partly cliche and a partly maybe not cliche answer to what I take back from this. I mean, I, what I wanted to do, what accomplish was the cliche of something, write something true and beautiful. Mm. Um, you know, that goes back to to Hemingway and others. Um, but also, to, for myself, I also want to write something that showed the commitment that I've had uh, to overcoming and to, to, to facing the, the depths of, of the abyss and the darknesses a thousand darknesses mm -hmm. in my life is, uh, that I've that I and my fa that my family has faced as well as Salvadorans. I wanted to literally. I mean, I kind of like to say, I've looked into the abyss, so you don't have to, mm -hmm. and you can look into it through my eyes. Right. Uh, I haven't put a bullet in my head, and I'm sharing with people the the beautiful and the sublime and the ugly things that I had to deal with in order to overcome and and actually be a better person by unforgetting who I was. Mm -hmm. Say, for example, as a person who had to hide my militancy, one of the, for me, one of the nobler parts of me is the part that has struggled for social justice to the point where I made a commitment to a political military organization that was a revolutionary organization fighting a fascist military dictatorship. I had to spend decades hiding that from the world because nobody was going to give me a job if they thought hey man this guy was an ex-guerrilla screw that we're not going to hire him i had to hide that for political reasons or for personal reasons from fear there's a lot of people with incredible more incredible stories than mine with a nobility that shines forth as brightly as any you know myth or or true story that are Salvadorans, but that aren't telling their stories. Because, for example, there are immigrant people, women and men, like G, who doesn't want me to reveal her name, 
you know, who can't tell their story because they feel it would affect their immigration status. So, but they're revolutionaries. They have great stories of courage, of love, and of things I try to put in my book. So, um, I think, yeah, commitment, you know, is, uh, is one of the keys to writing for me. I have to have a commitment to be able to go into the dark places and to the most fearful, physical, dangerous places that I've been to, but also to the internally dangerous and scary places um, that writing required me to go to. Um, but yeah, it's truth, beauty, and commitment, that, which you know brings a dose of fearlessness that I think is required for to write as beautifully as you can. That's what I try to do. Well, I think you've accomplished it, man. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, um, I, I've seen, I've seen how you've changed from the beginning when you started writing the book. To the, and I think what it be, not you changed as an individual. I think you're the same core person. I also think, you know, knowing you as I do, um, you're, you're more at peace with, with you, with who you are and your past and the relationships you've had. I think this book had helped you evolve as an individual and as a person. And I can tell you that when you think about what it takes, not just to write the book, but this particular book and the story it tells, you know, to me, I see a lot of courage, a lot of vulnerability, but what it leads to that is hope. And I just never thought of hope being, I never considered hope being an absolute. Something has to give us hope and being courageous and vulnerable led you to that. So that's what I see in this book. I see courage. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to read this that are going to be wrecked see themselves in it, man. People that have never seen themselves, as you've mm -hmm. already seen. You've already seen people getting back to you about that. Right? Yeah. No, I'm I'm really, thank you, Jesus. That really means a lot to me coming from a fellow writer and an, and an old friend. Um, yeah, no, I'm elated that Salvadorans, for example, that are reading this book already are buying, are crying, and then they're buying copies of the book and sharing them with their families. I'm elated that a poet like Javier, an A-list poet like Javier Zamora, or somebody like Barbara Ehrenreich, or a brilliant, another brilliant writer like Mike Davis or Hector Tobar, or scholars like Lacey Abregor reading my book and saying the things they are about it. And yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I try to be true to, I, have, I had a model before I started this book, and it's one of the models that's guided my life. I teach my students whatever I'm teaching, whether it's writing or something else uh, in a university that, you know, it's good to have a model. Mine's has been for some time now, bold in word and deed. And so there's a, my book is as much an action story as it is a family story. So, yeah, we tried my, tried my best and I hope people receive it that way. I think they will, brother. And, uh, I appreciate your time, man. I, it's your, anything else you want to share? I, I know what I'd share. It's like I'm, I'm as proud of this book as you are, man, because mm. I've been, you know, aside seeing, seeing your struggle and your efforts. And one other word besides courage and vulnerability I want to add is perseverance because mm. that's what it takes, bro. I, it really takes that to get this done. So, well done, brother. Thank you. Congratulations, man. And that's our show for today. Grottopod is produced by Brad Belukchian, Rita Chang Epic, George Higgins, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingartner. The music is by Sugartown. Please review and subscribe to Grottopod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.